Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to 6.20. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to know to show this same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear, to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Lovely, thanks very much for reading.
welcome if you've uh, joined us since the beginning. It's wonderful to see you here today. Let's pray as we start. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so, Heavenly Father, we ask that your word would do its work in our hearts today. Amen. Well, have you ever found yourself in the middle of explaining something very important to someone, only to realise that they're not actually paying attention? I can remember this happening to me as if it was only yesterday, and it was actually at university. It has definitely happened since then but this is a particularly memorable episode of it. I was a keen young theology student, and uh, for one of my Old Testament papers, I was taught by a very long-bearded Jesuit priest. He kind of closely resembled what you might imagine an Old Testament prophet to actually look like. And when asked about his general well-being, his customary answer always was, while there's death, there's hope. So you get, you get the picture, you get the picture of this man. Anyway, every week I would visit his sparsely furnished room in his college in order to read out my essay and then discuss it with him. There I was one Tuesday afternoon reading out my brilliantly argued essay when there came to my ears the unmistakable sound of a human being perfectly asleep. In the words of... Hebrews 5, verse 11, he was no longer trying to understand (laughs) my essay. In fact, the original Greek word in the text here for not trying to understand is, it's nothros. Another way of translating it would be lethargic. Now remember, this letter is written to uh, a group of Jewish Christians, originally, who were tempted to go back to their old faith of Judaism. And the the whole letter is to persuade them not to do that. And the writer's main argument is that Jesus Christ is the supreme fulfilment of all that the Old Testament pointed forward to. So therefore, it would be crazy to go back. And right here, we pick up the argument in um, chapter 5, verse 11. The writer, he's just been focusing particularly on Jesus as the great high priest that the high priest of the Old Testament pointed to forward to. And in verse 11, he's just about to to launch into explaining this in a bit more detail, you'll see, when he stops himself and he says, I've got much more to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you're too lethargic to listen. Now, when my tutor was too lethargic to listen, I coughed politely um, and he woke up. But to to get his readers and us uh, here today to listen, the writer of this letter now throws two rhetorical buckets of cold water at us. So are you you ready uh, in the chapel of St. Mary Undercroft this Tuesday lunchtime to have a couple of cold buckets of water and one warm piece of encouragement at the end? So the first bucket is this. It's in uh, 5.11 to 6 verse 3, and it's don't be a baby Christian. These verses show what happens when you are lethargic about growing in your knowledge of Christ. In verses 11 to 13, the writer paints this picture 
of a ridiculous group of people who are grown adults but still sitting around in nappies drinking milk. The picture makes the point that they were stuck on the very sort of basic introductory teaching about the Christian faith, such as the things he lists in verses 1 to 2. The need for repentance of faith, the need for baptism, resurrection to judgment and eternal life. So here's my obvious first question to us this lunchtime. Are we actually eating solid food that enables us to grow in our knowledge and love of Christ? Coming here on a Tuesday to learn more of the riches of Christ in all the scriptures is one way. So do please keep coming and please keep inviting others to come along with you too. Another way is to be a member of a church that emphasises growing in your knowledge and love of Christ from all the scriptures. Another way is getting hold of some daily Bible reading notes. I I wonder if you've come across those to help you read the Bible for yourself day by day. Do please ask me afterwards. I've got all sorts of great recommendations on those. A milk-only diet for an adult is likely to lead to serious health problems. And in the same way, the writer warns us that there are serious consequences for the Christian who doesn't feed on solid food of all of the Bible, of all that it has to say about the person and the work of Christ. And he lists some spiritual health problems that result. The first, in verse 11, it simply means that they're they're actually missing out on all that he's trying to tell them about what it means for Jesus to be this great high priest, his perfect obedience, which completely secures their future, and his perfect sympathy with them, with their temptations in the present. Second, how tragic to go through all of life and, and to miss, on all, miss out on all that blessing that God has for you. I have three small boys, and they are learning to swim at the moment. They are experiencing the transforming difference of getting uh, out of the shallow end, of just sort of standing and splashing in the shallow end, and then being able to explore all the joys of the deep end, swimming, diving, bombing, going underwater, and so on. And that's just the swimming pool. Being able to swim will mean there are possibilities are endless in terms of exploring the oceans and rivers and lakes of the wider world. And in a similar way, the writer says, don't get stuck in the shallow end of knowing God all your life. There are endless, joyful depths of God to explore. They're waiting to be discovered. Don't miss out. Second, it also means that they're in no position to be teachers of anybody else about the Christian faith. They've been given the best news in the world, but they're in no position to actually pass it on to someone else. If you're a Christian here today, I'll bet that in 9 out of 10 cases, you heard that life-changing message about Jesus Christ from a friend or a family member. And I'll also bet you feel incredibly, eternally grateful to that person or to those people. And now you're in that same position. You have this amazing treasure to pass on. Can, Can you do that? The writer is saying that the Christian message, it's simple to understand and receive in the first place, but to teach the Christian message simply and clearly, you need to be able to understand it deeply. The third problem about stunted spiritual growth in verses 13 to 14 is that it affects the way you live as well. 
Do you see that the mature have learned to distinguish good and evil and how to live a righteous life? It's a, it's a basic rule, isn't it? We, we behave according to our beliefs. If your knowledge of Christ and all that he's done for you is shallow, it follows that when temptation comes, you're much more likely to make the wrong decisions with bad consequences for you and for others. So if you're a follower of Christ here today, here's this first bucket of icy water the writer has for you. Don't be a baby Christian. If you are, the consequences are serious. You won't experience that life-transforming joy of being totally satisfied in Christ. You won't be able to pass on this joy to other people. And it will have bad consequences for the way that you live. Now the second bucket. It comes in verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6. And I've called it, don't be a phony Christian. Don't be a baby Christian, don't be a phony Christian. It's important to notice that these verses are not describing baby Christians anymore. The Bible teaches in many other places that once God has brought someone to faith, once he's brought about the spiritual miracle of new life in someone, he keeps that person to the very end of their lives and into eternity. Even if they go through long periods of being a baby Christian, like we've just seen, even if they go through long periods of deep doubt, and getting things badly wrong in their lives. And there are those famous verses, like in John chapter 10, verse 27, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And one of the ways that God uses to keep his sheep is by warning them against being baby Christians, like we've just seen in those verses we've just looked at. So if you read verses 4 to 8 and, 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 and worry, this, this might be me, I'm not sure about God at the moment, or, or I'm not sure he can forgive X thing in my life. That in itself, the fact that you're asking that question, is a sure sign that you are not the person being described. The person in verse 6 is, is different from the baby Christian. This is someone who has arrived at a position of outright unbelief and opposition to God. They have, in the words used, used there, they have fallen away. Now, of course, the question then is, fallen away from what? Because the Bible is very clear elsewhere that God does not allow his people to fall away, as I've just explained. So it can't mean falling away from a genuine faith in Christ. So I think it means falling away from a phony Christian faith. A person can at one time be a member of a church, can show signs of enlightenment and enthusiasm about faith and the Bible, can have shared in the experience of God at work in a group of Christian believers. And as I was thinking about it, I, I wonder if these are the kind of people that Jesus describes in the, in the parable of the sower. Those ones who receive the word of God and are enthusiastic for a while, but all sorts of things like persecution and cares of the world come along and the seed sown in them then proves unfruitful. I wonder if that's that category of people. So again, it's an obvious question to ask ourselves, am I a phony Christian? Because it's possible to have the outward signs, enthusiasm for church, the Bible, liturgy, being a good moral person, 
but not inwardly to have a heart that truly despairs of your sin before a holy God. A heart that truly turns to Christ as your only saviour and hope. And a heart that treasures Christ, therefore, above all else. In short, a heart that's not repentant. The warning for the phony Christian is in verse 8. If they refuse to repent and seek God's mercy, then it stands to reason all that remains for them is God's judgment. They refuse God's mercy. So don't be a baby Christian. Don't be a phony Christian. And after the two buckets of cold water, now the writer turns in verses 9 to 20 to his... He goes back to his great theme of Christ, the great and supreme high priest, to give us some warm encouragement to end with. Be encouraged by your secure hope in Christ, verses 9 to 20. And in 9 to 12, he says, look, I've still got hope for you, even if you are baby Christians at the moment. And there are two great great reasons he has hope for them. The first is, uh, lies in Abraham. God has already proved himself utterly reliable in keeping his promises when he kept his promise and oath to Abraham to give him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky in completely miraculous circumstances. So that's one great cause for hope he gives them. The second great reason for hope is that Jesus, their great high priest, has gone into heaven itself and that he's there forever as our representative. And when the writer says he's entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, we know that he actually means heaven itself, because he's already said in chapter 4, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And he's repeating this great hope again. But here he's particularly emphasising the security of that hope. They don't need to doubt their salvation They don't need to return to trusting in the kind of tangible sacrificial system and the high priest of the Old Testament. Because Jesus, the great high priest, he's actually gone into heaven itself. And the very fact that he died, he rose, he ascended into heaven is proof that that sacrificial work on their behalf is actually successful. Otherwise, he wouldn't be there. And the writer finishes by illustrating the security of this hope with this wonderful picture of Christ as an anchor. He's an anchor who's now firmly secured in heaven. Nothing can dislodge him from heaven. No sin of ours is too great. No suffering or temptation we experience now can change this or dislodge him. He can sympathise. He is there. So as you go away today, please, can can you picture Jesus as this huge anchor stretching from earth all the way into heaven? And all the Christian has to do now is to hold on to that anchor. Jesus, our great high priest, has done everything necessary to secure our forgiveness. And he's able to sympathise and help us in our present trials and temptations. Now that, I think, is a truth well worth waking up for and paying attention to, isn't it? Let's pray and ask for God's help that we might do that. Let's pray.
Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray, deliver us from being baby Christians. Deliver us from being phony Christians. And instead, help us to trust in Jesus, our great High Priest, who has done everything necessary for our salvation. Help us to trust in him, our anchor in heaven. Amen.